0: We even had an appropriate sound effect this morning at the coming of 400 men. What does that sound like? Running on the grates. Jacob's story has, of course, been our focus for this month. We will transition to Joseph uh, next month. But when we last saw Esau, the text has focused us on Jacob, but Esau is not a bit part in the story, as we know. However, when we last saw Esau... Some 20 years back in the timeline, by this point in the story, he was totally embittered, consoling himself with the idea of killing his brother Jacob, which necessitated Isaac sending Jacob away. He sent Jacob to his mother's uh, family, to Laban. What has happened to Esau since then? I don't know about you, but, I mean, we know biblical stories, and and in in some ways, I mean, there's advantages to that. There's disadvantages to that. The disadvantages to that is the stories no longer surprise us. And if you're reading this for the first time, uh, I would love it if there was somebody in the room who was actually reading this for the first time and would say, well, this is unexpected, Considering the kind of disposition we last saw Esau in in the text a few chapters back, again, the text is focused on Jacob. But we know from the last chapter where we were last Sunday, Jacob was deathly afraid of meeting Esau again, given the history between these two brothers. If you're not familiar with the story, go back to Genesis 25 and begin reading up to this point. So there's this history between them. It has to do with the blessing that Jacob gets that that Esau thought he was getting by birthright and didn't get. And it was God's decree that was actually from before the boys were even born was at work in the blessing coming to Jacob. God turned over the culture of the firstborn and had his reasons for doing that. But it's all water under the bridge at this point. And yet, how did Esau get downstream of what he once felt. If you go back to chapter 27, you can see his feelings there, and they were intense and hard feelings, but how come Esau didn't drown in his bitterness? A lot of people do. I find two things in this narrative for us to consider, in Hebrews twelve fifteen that Mark read at the end, serves as something of an applied reference to Genesis 33. You occasionally get that. You'll find a a verse in the New Testament that that really seems to, there's a story back in the Old Testament that really encapsulates uh, that particular verse, and and this is that. We use Hebrews 12, 15 this way. But from this story, we're going to consider two things. First is the bitterness that could have been but wasn't. And second, the grace that was. Now, if you want to be precise, it's probably better to talk about the mercy that was, but be that as it may, uh, because Hebrews 12.15 uses the term grace, I didn't want to uh, conflate the two, and so Hebrews 12.15, tagged on the end of this story for our purposes in this message, I always uh, think of it in NIV. I learned it in, in the New International Version, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. ESV, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. NIV, see to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root springs up, grows up, to cause trouble and defile many. That's Hebrews 12, 15. So two things we're going to look at, the bitterness that could have been and wasn't, and the grace that was. The bitter root that springs up between these brothers Uh, is due to Jacob conniving to get the blessing Esau believed would come to him. Now, I mentioned chapter 27. It, It would be good just to get the emotion that was to go back and look at it momentarily. You can turn to it, chapter 27 of Genesis, and follow along in verse 34, or you can just listen to me read it, Genesis 27, verse 34. We're back in the moment when Jacob has just left Isaac With the goat's hair on his neck and arms, and he's got the blessing that is what God had said to his grandfather Abraham and repeated to Isaac had now been repeated to Jacob. It wouldn't come through Esau, it would come through Jacob, the Savior of the world. This is the ultimate aspect of the blessing. Chapter 27 As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, that the one who was just here before you, your brother, is the one who is blessed indeed, no take backs. Chapter 27 says he cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and says to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? He's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and now he's taken away my blessing. And then you go down in the narrative of chapter 27 to verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching and I will kill my brother Jacob. In the words of Esau, her older son were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. But now in chapter 33, there's this embrace, there's this reconciliation, and so we ask what happened to Esau? Years have passed, 20 at least. Jacob feared he would find his brother still bitter. That's the point of the the retin that goes ahead of Jacob with all these gifts the wives and the children and, and, and the, the beasts of burden are all bearing these gifts for, for Esau. Jacob wants to, to give a, a, a significant portion of his wealth to his brother. Uh, we didn't read that, but that's uh, in, the, in the narrative uh, previous to this. And, and so this is, is happening because Jacob fears Esau's going to cut my family down with his sword. But that's not what happens. The roots of bitterness, to put it in that picture, have been cut away from Esau. He's not entangled in a need for vengeance. And so two considerations, the first of which, the bitterness that could have been but wasn't. And that's really remarkable when you get into the emotion of this story and and what happened between these brothers. It's, It's very remarkable that it wasn't. Because we think here of, of, of Jesus' words. You know, his sermon on the mount begins with an extended meditation on the Ten Commandments. And he talks about how if anger sets in on us, it, it can do so in, in such a way that we become murderous at heart. And the Lord knew and, and, and we know from his teaching and, and from our own experience that anger is a tricky emotion. And the reason anger is a tricky emotion is because it is very self-justifying. Now, there's such a thing as, as righteous anger, being right, uh, right, rightly angered about the, the, the right kinds of things that we should be angry about. But even in that, we can become self-righteous. This analogy in Hebrews 12:15. see to it that no one misses the grace of God that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Why? Why does the writer to the Hebrews uh, use roots? What is it about this picture? What is he trying to get across to us? If you go into a a, a forest and you, you see a tree has been cut down and, and there's the felled tree and there's the stump, it's it all looks dead. But what we don't see is underneath the stump. There are the roots, and the roots live on. And so what the analogy is trying to get across to us in this verse in Hebrews, which is an applied reference to Genesis 33, is that anger often, it's like it goes subterranean in us. We may not detect its ongoing influence. Even if the event that made us angry is past, or or the person who, who did that thing to me is gone from my life, we can still live on in the feelings we still have, the actions we still take, the reactions. This is the analogy the author of Hebrews draws regarding bitterness, how it works. How did we see Esau when we last left him in the narrative of Genesis back in chapter 27? Exceedingly bitter, the text says. But then you get to chapter 33 and he's not acting in that bitterness and so something has happened. Bitterness has to be dug out of us or it will push up from within us. You ever found yourself, I know know as you listen to this you're thinking, man, I think a so-and-so and and -and so-and-so really needs this sermon. For sake of illustration, have you ever found yourself reacting to someone who hurt you with something along these lines? Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to hurt them back. I mean, it sounds really noble. I, 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 or you might even say, I, I couldn't do to them what they did to me. And maybe you couldn't. You say, I, I, I don't want to hurt them back, but, but I've lost all respect for them. And, and, and I don't want to have anything else to ever do with them. See, that sounds like we're free of the bitterness. If I wanted to hurt them, if I was trying to hurt them, then you could could call me bitter. But but I'm, I'm not trying to hurt them, so obviously I'm not bitter. But what about ignoring them? Now, there may be reasons why reconciliation with someone we get sideways with may not be possible. There are situations when, try as we might, it doesn't happen. There are even situations it cannot happen. I've, I've known a few in pastoral counseling that are multi-layered and, and the, the best efforts known to, to men and women are, are just not going to, to create reconciliation. There, there are, there are some, some areas in which that has been the case. But ignoring someone also lands its blows. In other words, you don't have to assault somebody. You can ignore them. Even if you don't assault the one who hurt you. Because you think, I don't want to do that. I, I couldn't do that. Even if you don't want to assail them, you know, run them down among mutual friends. Talk about them in negative ways. Even so, ignoring someone can mean we're not free of the bitter roots. We're still entangled. And I know this is me at times. And if it's me, there's probably a better than average chance it's a lot of you as well. And, and we can give ourselves a pass. In fact, oftentimes we do give ourselves a pass. We shouldn't because what happens when bitterness gets rooted, so long as we're in that state, the anger that we once felt stays present tense. We keep finding it again. We keep locating it. The, the wound never heals. Bitterness has to get uprooted. And the main reason is because we get so self justifying when we abide in our anger at someone. And when this happens, we give ourselves permission to do to them what we would not want someone to do to us, like sabotage them relationally, embarrass them, shun them, just keep them bound to their fault forever, sort of locked into that prison. Or maybe even worse, we do. I know theological circles. Those are the circles that I run in. And I can tell you among theologians and those who want to be theologians, people who are really interested in doctrine, the way bitterness expresses itself is to misrepresent the view of the teacher or the church expression that you oppose. And we're in a day now where this is rife you rail against this teacher or that expression of church and you think you tell yourself well i'm just being valiant for truth but you're in your opposition you're you're scorning a brother or sister in the lord you're you're even mocking them you're misrepresenting and misconstruing their views theological integrity is not at the root of that bitterness is something has made you bitter about them and it spreads that's what roots do See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Imagine if Esau had infected these 400 men with his bitterness toward Jacob. It would would have been a slaughter. Esau in in the intervening time has become kind of like a prince. Uh, He's got... 400 men, probably more than that in their families, that he essentially rules. He's got wealth. He's got power. He's he's over uh, these particular areas. It was even told him when Isaac said, well, I do have a blessing for you. Your dwelling will be here, and you'll be great, but not as great as your brother, implication of the blessing. These 400 men are his loyalists. They're quite happy to take up an offense on his behalf. And I go back to chapter 27 and I think of Esau, that language in chapter 27 where Rebekah says to Jacob, your brother is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. He's consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Get into the emotion of that. How distressed of spirit do you have to be where it is a consoling feeling to think of taking somebody else's life, much less your brother's? And I imagine in that, in that consoling that Esau did, I, I, I'm almost sure he had thoughts like, I would never treat our father the way Jacob treated him. I would never steal from our family the way Jacob has stolen from me. Yeah, but he would kill his brother. Francis Spufford, British author, has said that what Christianity is supposed to be is a league of the guilty. A league of the guilty. I just, I love that way of putting it. What he's meaning by that is if, is, is if we would all stop and realize that we each one have deep rooted sin in ourselves, it keeps us from trying to gain leverage over one another. We're not all guilty of the same things in the same way, to the same degree, but we are all guilty, each one of us, before God. And enough so that we ought to recognize this in one another immediately, even if we don't know what particularly it is. We know that it is. And when we recognize in one another that we belong to the league of the guilty, and this is what our faith is about, sinners only apply for saving faith, for for saving grace. It takes the conceit out of you. I don't know what you want said about you at the end of your life, but I would love it If it was said of me, he didn't miss the grace of God. I think that'd be a great epitaph. In fact, I I considered it this week and I thought, I haven't priced this yet, (laughs) but I thought on my headstone, that's what I want to have etched on there. He didn't miss the grace of God. Probably too expensive. Probably have to have Lynn make a homemade sign (laughs) uh, for the grave with her table saw and our family. She's the one with the table saw, she's the artist. And I don't want that on there because I think I epitomize uh, graciousness. It it is my aspiration. I still have a long way to go. But I can't think of anything better to tag on a life than that. He didn't miss the grace of God. There are a number of things that can make us bitter. I have mine, you have yours. Yours and mine may not be the same in cause and effect. (laughs) Maybe worlds apart. Things that upset me may not upset you at all. You may think that's a trifle, that's a sniffle. What are you what are you acting like you got pneumonia for? And I may do the same thing to you. But the thing that will happen to us in bitterness if it takes hold is we will miss, we will miss the grace of God to ourselves and to others. And when we withhold grace from someone else, I'm not saying we don't have at times deep and severe problems to work through with others. We do. I'm not treating this as, as a surface cut. Some things go down to the bone. But when we withhold grace from someone else, if we withhold them, grace from them, we, we will miss it ourselves. There's a whole experiential quality to our faith that you will just miss. You'll be present to it and separated from it at the same time. I realize there are a lot of things that are hard to forgive and I, and I know we struggle with how to let go of an offense and some offenses are it's like they're made of rubber you know you drop it and it pow comes right back up in your face comes right back to your hands it, it's it's difficult because we think well you know does forgiving mean that uh, now it, it's like I, I'm okay with that with that wrong thing that happened to me if, if I forgive it I'm I'm essentially telling that person uh, you can do it again to me because I'm okay with it no it, it never means that we're never okay with wrong things. Forgiveness doesn't make a wrong thing right. The wrong thing is still wrong. What happened to Esau is not that the wrong thing he experienced a few chapters earlier in chapter 27 he got okay with. Oh, yeah, you know It's all right that Jacob has the blessing. Yeah, fine, yeah, that's all right. I don't think that. I think what happened is that somehow and we're not made privy to how this happened in Esau's life but by the time we get to chapter 33 and we see the reconciliation there's no other way to put this consider this then somehow Esau also experienced the grace of God knew he did and was content with it now I know Romans 9 well and some of you are thinking Romans 9 yeah but what about you know Romans 9 Jacob I have loved Esau I've hated I'm not offering a reinterpretation, but that's about the choice that God made between the brothers. Not based on who they were, as Romans 9 goes on to say, which is important because between them I'd pick Esau. But these brothers are exhibits in the New Testament for how God works his purposes, not according to expectations. Grace doesn't go to those who are fit for it. Grace goes to a lying cheat... Of a guy like Jacob, but grace also goes to Esau too. Somehow, some way, we're not told. But this guy Esau had every reason to be self-righteous. And in his self-righteousness would have killed Jacob and his family. Think about that. If he had acted in self-righteousness, it would have been the motivation for killing. So the grace that comes to Esau is not in terms of the great blessing. He wasn't the chosen one. Jacob was. But in the intervening years between what we last saw of Esau and now here in chapter 33, it's not like Esau accomplished the grace of God for himself. But he recognized it in his own life nonetheless. He didn't miss it. I don't know of another way to make sense of Esau's reconciling spirit. In fact, we could even say That the wrestling match between God and Jacob in the last chapter, where we were last Sunday, giving Jacob that limp, was so Jacob wouldn't miss the grace of God to him, though he was the chosen one. Sometimes a limp, spiritually speaking, is tied to that which we must not forget. Don't ask me to explain that. I, I just think that's how it goes for some of us. Esau had no limp. But he did at one point have a crushed spirit. But now he had seemingly an appreciation for God's grace to Jacob and also to himself. We see it in how he treats his brother here, his brother who only ever mistreated him. We see in Esau's response to Jacob, which which didn't well up from the goodness in Esau. This, This is something that's a response to a greater goodness. God's goodness to him also, which Esau didn't miss. And so, Jacob says to him, look at verse 10, chapter 33, verse 10. Accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Contextually, when did we last see the face of God? The last chapter, let me go, day is dawning implication of that nobody can see my face and live you've been close to me all night but it's been pitch black unless you live in the country you don't really know what darkness is at night kind of your eyes don't really adjust to and so we consider the experience Jacob just had come from he saw God's face not in the fullness of day but through the night wrestling with him and now he says to his brother your face which I see Is like his face. Why? Because you're being good to me too. You have the power to harm me, brother. But you're being gracious to me, just like God has been. This is our second consideration of two, and it goes quicker. We've considered the bitterness that could have been but wasn't. Now we see the grace that was. The whole scene in chapter 33 is undergirded by strong grace and emphasize strong because if you're Esau treating this one who caused you such pain with such graciousness here what do you do when the rubber ball bounces back up in your face uh, chapter 33 verse 11 please accept my blessing is that not a sore term that is brought to you because God has dealt gracious with me and because I have enough. Literally, I have everything. You say, Well, he's just saying he has everything he needs. He's just invoked the blessing, the point of conflict, the sore spot. Brother, seeing you is so good. It's like seeing the face of God, the God who gave me everything. What a triggering thing that could be. Doesn't that still sting even a little? I mean, I think so. Probably it's got to. You're free to disagree. That's fine. That's how I'm reading the story. It's almost like two rivals for a girl. You know, so many movies are made with this particular storyline. She finally chooses one. I don't like these movies personally. I always identify with the underdog, I guess. who Never. Uh, but, you know, he chooses, uh, she chooses the one guy over the other. And then the one guy, the, the guy who's not chosen, he has to get over her. And he does, you know, he, he moves on, he finds love. But then he sees her again years later and feels that, that old familiar pain. You know, ah, she's not mine. It wasn't to be. It's kind of like that here. I don't think Jacob's trying to salt the wound I don't read him as being sociopathic here the wound seems to have closed in Esau anyway but what caused that wound was a big deal and all these years later when they meet and Esau has embraced his brother and he hears please accept my blessing to you because God has given me everything And it says in the text, verse 11, thus he urged him and he took it. Is that grace from Jacob to Esau? These gifts? No, that's that's custom. The grace in these narratives always centers on Jacob. It always centers on what Jacob received from God. God had been gracious with him as he tells Esau here. But Esau coming face to face with his brother who has everything, I think Esau would agree with what I'm about to say. That grace costs the recipient nothing, but it costs the giver everything. Not that Esau was the giver. He, He was the one taken from. At least that's how he lived it. God was the giver of the blessing through their father Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. We've established that. But Esau has not lived in reaction all these years. That's the thing you would expect from him. Somewhere in these chapters, in the years these chapters cover, though not in the chapters because we're not told how Esau has peace. And it's a, it's a, it's a familiar peace because it's the kind of peace you have when you, when you realize your place. In fact, it's the kind of peace that we have with God through Christ. What kind of grace comes to us from Him? Grace that costs us nothing but Him everything. You know what the scripture says? He who was rich became poor for our sake. He who knew no sin was flawless, was treated as if he was guilty of every kind of sin there is, as if he was the captain of the league of the guilty. But He's the Redeemer. And he redeems how he pleases, and he redeems whoever he pleases. He ought to come after us with 400 men, as it were, Jesus should. He ought to scare us to death. If we really had a a vision of God and his unfiltered brilliance. There's a reason everybody in Scripture who even gets within proximity of of the manifest glory of God hits their face. It's reflexive. Of fallen people it's a recognition that you should not have anything to do with me and yet he does not just having something to do with us that could be pretty plastic pretty antiseptic pretty artificial but an embrace an embrace is different he embraces us Jesus reconciles us to God, and then we find in God's good purposes, we were chosen all along to be the recipients, that He intended all along to to bring us in on the blessing that is God's goodness experienced by us in Jesus, in real time, and beyond as well this is the goodness of God this is the grace of God may none of us miss it may none of us miss it stand with me let's pray we'll sing Lord we don't want to miss your grace we invoke it a lot we talk about it a lot but it can become become white noise it can become just sort of the fade to the background it's a concept, it's a theory we embrace. And Lord, I, I pray that our growth as believers is marked by our not missing your grace. Lord, if any of us are, are entangled in roots of bitterness, that you would break through that, you would bust those roots, you would, you would get us away and out of that. There are wounds that still are tender to the touch years later. And I hope no one hears me running past that. But bitterness is a, is a present active emotion. It's still hot to the touch. The, the fire looks like it's gone out, but the coals are, are burning still underneath. And, and for that, we need your healing. And I pray, Lord, that you will do that healing work and that those of us who need that healing work experience even now standing in this place a sense that that you're going to do it that you're doing it even now and that we'll see progress until we're finally free of those roots and they're dead Father help us in this we need your help we find it so easy to clutch and to hold and to volunteer to be entangled some of us are itching for a fight always. We're, we're half cocked. We engage the world in a rage. We're always angry whether we're in traffic, whether we're at home, whether we're watching the TV. Lord, we need to be calmed by you. We console ourselves with murderous thoughts and we need you to transform us from the inside out. We need to meet Jesus again and I pray we would meet him afresh. Lord, thank you for your gracious kindness to us. Thank you for your gracious kindness to Jacob. Thank you for your gracious kindness to Esau. Lord, thank you for all the ways that you have shown us that you are good and that we can trust you regardless of what we count in our life missing regardless of our disappointments, we can trust you. Will you help us to do that? We need your help even to trust you. We certainly need your help to do the things you ask us to do and call us to do. We need your spirits filling, and I pray that we'll receive that. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.